You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. You know, all the uh, big significant events that happened in your life, it all started with a, an idea or desire. Whether you want to be a doctor or a lawyer <clears throat> or own your own business, buy your own house, become a professional athlete, or even plan a church, it involves years of planning. It involves months of interviews and job searches, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent, thousands of sacrifices made. Year after year, month after month, week after week, day by day. And it would all come down to you finally getting your white coat or you getting that degree, that diploma, or you signing on the dotted line or having the key handed over to you. And after and all that, after all that you and I have fought to do, all that we have aspired and dreamed of accomplishing, all the sacrifices we have, we have made, all that reminded me of this passage in particular because... As numerous promises from God after eight chapters of preparation, after 25 years of waiting, all the ups and downs of faith and unbelief, it all came down to this. Isaac was born. Can everyone say hallelujah? Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. And I want to think about the significance of this event. So I got three points to make. My first one is this. God, he keeps his word. Amen. Say that to your neighbor. God keeps his word. You know, we have... The problem we have in the political realm is that as citizens, we're promised thousands of promises from these political campaigns. And all these promises are made by hundreds of candidates. And it reminded me, I remember this time when in high school, we had the high school election, right? High school election. We had this one candidate who said, I promise to make this school a place where it's safe and comfortable to learn where there will be an open dialogue between students and teachers and teachers with parents. I promise to alleviate the congestion of the morning hallway rush and fix our lunch breaks and open studies in a way that we can leave campus and attend restaurants. My name is so-and-so. I'm not going to say it because I just don't want him. And he said, please vote for me as your next student president. And we're all like, yeah, right? Well, it was another candidate. And he said this. Look, those are lies. They're all lies. Nothing's going to change. Lunch will still serve barely edible food. You still won't be allowed to leave campus due to liability reasons. You won't want open dialogue between teachers and your parents. Nothing's going to change. But if you vote for me, I'll try to bring back the Milky Way bar in our vending machines. But no promises. So who do we vote for? The first or second guy? The first guy got voted in. First guy, because people, they wanted to believe in these lofty promises. What happened that year or the year after that? Nothing changed. Nothing changed, and we knew that. And what's even sadder is that no one really cared. No one really cared because ultimately no one really expected any of those promises to be kept. It was just all politics. But God is different. Thank the Lord. Thank him. Because God keeps his word, amen? 
And this is really the intent behind this passage here, to remind us that he keeps his word because he says it three times. In verse 1, the Lord visits Sarah as he had said. Continuing on the latter part of verse 1, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And again at the end of verse 2, Sarah conceived, bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time, which God had spoken, or another translation, had promised. Now, from just these two verses, I don't think there's any ambiguity here. God, he keeps his word. God keeps his word, but didn't always look that way to Abraham. In chapter 12, when Abraham was 75 years old, God first made the promise of descendants, but there was no pregnancy. There was no son on the way. Then later on in chapter 12, he went down to Egypt and through his foolishness almost lost his wife to Pharaoh. Abraham may have forgotten God's promises, but God didn't because God delivered Abraham and Sarah from that situation. Then in chapters 13, 14, time passed and Abram grew to become a great man. But even in that greatness, there was still no son. In chapter 15, God enlarged the promise. Not just children, but descendants. And as numerous as the stars of the heavens, God, he swore an oath to Abram, but there was still no child. By chapter 16, Abram was 85 years old, but there was still no sign of an heir. So he and his wife, Sarah, agreed to have their servant, Hagar, bear him a child. And while it may have been culturally accepted at that time, it wasn't God's way. And for them, they seemed to have forgotten about that promise. But in chapter 17, the Lord appeared to Abram again. He changed his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many or multitude. And told him what to name his son when he was born, which is great. It was awesome, but still no son. In fact, in chapter 18, when the Lord visited Abraham, again, promising that the child would be born within a year, what happened? Sarah laughed. Sarah laughed because at this point she was thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I've been biologically out of this race for quite some time. And this promise of a child is no longer a promise, but now it's a joke. Maybe tomorrow it'll be an insult, but either way, it's laughable. Are you kidding me? Even after God saying he'll be born within the year, there was still no child. And then in chapter 20, Abraham and Sarah were caught in the pattern of fearful deceit again. Abraham almost lost Sarah, but this time to Abimelech. Time after time, it seems that Abraham keeps forgetting about God's promises. When situations arise, he forgets to trust in God. When difficulties come, he forgets to run to God. When times are confusing, he forgets to confide in God. Aren't we like that? And so I think the real question we need to ask, God isn't what God's promises are to us, but rather, is God trustworthy? And the answer is yes. God is trustworthy. The mistake we make is when we keep asking God for promises that are not even from Scripture. We want God to promise us to heal us if we do this or do that. We want God to promise us a husband or a wife if we pray this way or that way. We want God to promise us wealth if we give a little seed money. And so we have all these lofty, oftentimes unbiblical promises that we want God to make with us. But if we can't even follow something simple like Joshua chapter 1, 8, 9, which is a pretty clear command from God for all of us here to read and meditate and, and know the Bible because if we do, his promise is that we'll be prosperous and successful as in we'll walk in step with God. You will experience the amazing partnership in his divine plan. You will be blessed to be a blessing. And yet we can't even devote a minute a day to read his word. God's saying, if you just reflect and know my word, I will walk with you. You will walk with me. And we're like... 
Well, let me see if I have time on my Bible app. So if you can't even trust in that promise, what good is it knowing anything else? And the reason why we have a hard time with this again is because we don't think God is trustworthy. We don't think God is someone who will keep his promises. And the reason I think many people have a hard time trusting God is because, A, you can't know someone unless you, get, unless you give them time. Give, give them time to get to know them. Meaning we don't trust God because we don't know God. And we don't know God because we don't have a relationship with God. But B, for all their lives, they have trusted in man. You have trusted in someone. You have trusted in people, and they have let you down. You've been beat down, broken, used, and abused. And so the mere mention of trusting in God, it creates a cloud of confusion, of emotion, pain, and doubt. You know, David in Psalm 55 talks about this experience of a pain when one of his most trusted counselors turned on him by supporting his son Absalom. The friend was Ahithophel, and he was like David's equal. They were counseled together. He counseled, they, they counseled one another. They worshiped side by side. They were companions who made a covenant of friendship, but then David was betrayed. He was hurt. So what did he do? Devastated, David turned to his one and only faithful friend. It says in Psalm 55, 16, As for me, I shall call upon the Lord, for I will trust only in thee. That needs to be our response, people. We can't let the brokenness of our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship. In fact, it needs to be the other way around. Let your relationship with God, the one filled with grace and mercy, lead you in your relationships with one another. Amen? We can trust in God because he keeps his promises. Because God is trustworthy. And Abraham, despite all the mishaps we read here in chapter 21, 25 years after the promise was first made, when Abraham was now really, really old, no less than 100 years old, and after Abraham had risen to great faith and also had fallen with great unbelief, despite all these ups and downs, Isaac was born. This says in verse 2, he was born at the time which God had spoken. But folks, let me tell you this here. Isaac's birth was not the main event. Because like everything else, it was just a glimpse of greater things to come. Because for over 2,000 years, God, he promised the coming of a greater son, his son, Jesus Christ, amen? In hundreds of ways, his birth, his life, his death, and resurrection, they were all prophesied and foreshadowed by all kinds of signs. But most of the world, they did not believe. Most of the world, they all ignored those predictions. This is what, God is saying that this is, this is who he says he is? We can and we must trust in God's unwavering word. We have to trust in what God says. Skeptics will mock. In fact, God says they will. The world may ignore God's promises as simple fairy tales. Even churches today try to reinterpret God's word to explain in such a way that's culturally sensitive and relevant. But God's word is God's word. It does not change. It's more relevant now as it was then. It's not up for reinterpretation. God, he keeps his promises. God keeps his word. For God is trustworthy and we're called to trust in his word no matter what our circumstances are. No matter what, no matter what you're going through, no matter how much pain you have endured from untrustworthy relationships horizontally, because God is not like anyone else. Like the psalmist wrote, your word, O Lord, is eternal, and it stands firm in the heavens. 
You can trust in God's promise, people. You don't have to trust me or one another, but you can trust in God's promises because he keeps his promises. Because God is trustworthy. But here's the next question. Okay, so God will do what he says he'll do. Fine, I'll concede to that, but why does it have to take so long? Can I hear an amen? Why does it have to take so long, Lord? Turn to your neighbor and say this. Why so long? And that goes to our second point. God works by raising the dead. I'm a forgetful person. Ask my wife. I'll remember my keys and wallet, but I'll forget my child. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll forget things I need to buy at the grocery store. <clears throat> but not only am I forgetful, I tend to procrastinate. Any procrastinators here? Yes. Very good. Thank you for your honesty. It's something that I'm working on, something that all of us are working on. I think I'm getting better, but I always need to keep in check, which is why I have such an amazing staff like Jesse and Joe and Pastor Esther and James, Pastor James, who keep me accountable and say, hey, did you do this or we need this and all that stuff. They, have, they remind me wonderfully. Now, our God, he doesn't forget, thank the Lord. He doesn't need, he doesn't procrastinate. Remember, the Bible said that Sarah bore a son at the very time God had promised him. When was the appointed time? It was when Abraham was old. Like God, he planned it to be at that time. Now this sounds weird. Verse 2, she bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old. Verse 7, Sarah said, I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you know when Abraham and Sarah had Isaac? When they almost died. Think about that. When they're on the verge of death, they had Isaac. So hear me out. Back in Genesis 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham, do you guys remember that he promised two things, land and descendants, right? Land and descendants. But when Abraham asked how all this would work out, God told him that his descendants would go down to, into Egypt for 400 years, and then they would come back and they would inherit the land. In other words, God is saying, Abraham, you're going to die before your family inherits the land. The only way Abraham would ever see it, it would be when God raised the dead. And the covenant ritual, do you guys remember that? Remember early in the morning, God told Abraham to go and divide up the sacrifices for the covenant making. But then nothing happened, right? After Abraham set up the entire sacrifice, the ceremony, the ritual, he waited. Nothing happened all day. And into the night, nothing happened. Well, something did happen. Birds started coming, if you recall. He started shooing them away. Don't taint the sacrifices. Don't mess up this ritual. But then nothing happened until Abraham fell asleep. And falling asleep was another word for death. And then, in Abraham's sleep, God made his promise. Look, Apostle Paul, he thought this too. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about our salvation or justification. That's not, it's not something that you and I contribute to. God, he does it all. God saves us. God saves us. All we have to do is receive by faith. And so to prove this point, he takes us back to Abraham, the man of faith. In verse 19 of Romans 4, it reads, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 
since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And then Hebrews chapter 11 says the same thing. Abraham was good as dead, and from this man came descendants. In other words, Paul is saying that when God first called Abraham and Sarah out of Ur of the Chaldeans, where they were at, at that moment in time, guess how they were doing? They were young. At that moment, they were healthy. They were, they were you know what, they were filled with vitality, and they were alive and ready to reproduce and make a nation, but then by waiting until they were 100 years old, waiting until they were 90 years old, God had waited until they were virtually dead, at least in regards to their ability to have children. And it doesn't make any sense for you and I either, does it? It's like, God, use me. Use me now. I'm ready to be used. Have you guys ever said that? Now's the time, God. I'm ready. Use me now because I've got all my ducks in order. I graduated from college and uh, high school and college, and I got a job. I'm ready. God, use me now. Bring a wife to my life. God, I'm ready now. I have a steady income. I moved out of my mom's basement. I'm good. Use me now. I'm ready. Use me now. I'm ready to go. Use us now because the time is good. But God, he makes us wait. And he waited with Abraham and Sarah until they were almost dead. But why? There are practical reasons, sure. Like waiting, it helps us grow in our patience. It sanctifies us. And all those things are good. But in this particular case, why would God wait until they were almost dead? Why would he do that? In Romans chapter 4, Paul explains. In verse 17, he says, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Then in verse 24, before ours also, it will be count to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So why was God doing this? Why was he waiting until they were pretty much dead? Because through Abraham, through Sarah, all the way back, Here from Genesis, God was showing us the nature of how he saves us. Do you guys get this? God was showing us the nature of how he saves. He's not just teaching Abraham and Sarah a lesson. He was showing to everyone, including you and I, how he saves us. It's not something that's in our power by keeping laws and rules. We can think we have all the might and strength, but like Ephesians says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why he had to come to save us because we can't save ourselves. And so Jesus came and he took our sins and death upon himself and died on the cross. God raised him from the dead on the third day, and now salvation gives us new life, life from the dead. Salvation gives us a new birth because we're raised with Christ from our deadness and sin in order to be alive unto God. Salvation is a supernatural gift from the life-giving God. That's what he does. And so way back in time, in the time of Abraham, God, he painted this amazing picture of salvation. He let Abraham and Sarah get as good as dead, as Apostle Paul said. Then he revived them. He revived them, and he produced through them a supernatural new life. Listen, folks, we will never get better on our own. We, won't, we might clean up our acts a little bit. We might start looking a little bit more presentable, more polished, maybe even a little bit more secure, more put together, but we will never on our best day ever meet God's perfect standard. We won't. We'll never meet God's approval. Our natural state is nothing less than spiritual deadness because we can't raise ourselves up from the dead. We need God to do that. So what does that mean? 
If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, now is the time. Only Jesus is able to give you a new life you can never achieve by your best efforts. But what does that mean for the believer? It means knowing that it was God who saved you. God saved you. It was God who loved you. It was God who was faithful. And that should lead us to a daily surrendering of our will to his. Daily surrendering. God, thank you. Every single day should be a life filled with gratitude and surrender. But it also means that at your greatest moment of weakness, when you have absolutely nothing else to give, nothing else to offer, when you are absolutely depleted, when you've given up your own strength, when you fully, completely surrendered, that's when you will see the mighty power of God supernaturally work through your life. The difference between us and God is that you and I, we like to work when there are options, right? But God, he loves to work when there are no options. You hear me? Because it's in times like that when there's nothing but hopelessness, when there's nothing but death, nothing but the bottom of the pit, that God will show you that it was never about your power but his. So at the end of the day, when the Lord rescues you, the only direction of praise you can give is up. If you believe that there's a situation in life where you need God to work in, don't give him options. Give him total surrender. Don't give him options. Don't say A, B, or C, Lord. No, say, I give my life to you. Give him total surrender. Then and only then will you see his mighty hands at work because God works by raising the dead. Now, my last point ends with this exhortation. Think of it this way. It was 25 degrees this morning when I left. And it says it feels like two degrees. What? And so it's so cold, it will be like us as a father or Grace as a mother saying to our children, it's extremely cold, Ada. Uh, zip up your coat all the way, wear your hat, your gloves, and then you will stay warm. It is us trying to persuade her and encourage her and challenge her. Do this. This is the right thing to do because it's so so-and-so, whatever. So this is what I believe our last point is. It is an exhortation to you. Despite the circumstances, what's going on right now, the Lord is saying, rejoice in his grace. Rejoice in his grace. All right, so <clears throat> we can't really finish this sermon unless we talk about the laughter, right? Now, for many years, people, they never associate laughter with Christianity, Churches were a solemn place, a holy place. You come in here, right? You might be smiling outside the door. Once you enter, you put on your holy face, <laughs> right? Because you, you want to look spiritual. This, this is a place of holiness. This is a place where we have a lot of repentance, a lot of godly sorrow. And our faith, true, is a serious thing. Sin is gruesome, absolutely. Circumstances are burdensome. But here we find Sarah laughing, laughing. In verse 6, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Sarah's laughing, and she predicts that everyone who hears her will join her. So what's going on? Well, the name Isaac means laughter or he laughs. Okay, so remember back in Abraham, he laughed back in chapter 17. And then remember how Sarah laughed, but it was in unbelief in chapter 18. Well, here's the thing. I think God has a sense of humor. I do. Because he named his kid Laughter. He, made this, he named his kid Laughter. Maybe it was supposed to be a gentle rebuke, but more than anything, I think it was a reminder to them of his grace. 
So Sarah laughed, but not in unbelief this time. No, she laughed in sheer delight. She, she laughed in complete freedom in the face of God's goodness and grace, and that's how we should respond to. Not the kind of silly laughter we get from comedy shows, but the joy of experiencing something profound, so deep, so refreshing, and so good. There was a time a few years ago, I'm going to be honest with you, when I was going through an extremely difficult time in my life. Difficult season in my life. Ministry had new challenges. My own spiritual walk with God was becoming a bit weightier. I was really struggling with the vision. With my role as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a discipler, as a disciple, as everything. Every, every arena of my life, it was just a burden somehow. It was confusing somehow. And so through the encouraging my wife, she said, go to the prayer mountain. Seek the Lord. And so I went to Anna's prayer mountain, which is about 45 minutes away, to just remove myself from any responsibilities and rules or just for a couple days and one night. So I went and I fasted and I prayed, hoping that I would get some fresh wind, hoping that God will somehow write and scribble on the wall so I would come back, so I could come back excitedly and share the new news to you all. And so all day I prayed, and all day nothing. All day I read the word, all day nothing. Then around three in the morning, with growing frustration, with no plan, with no change, I began weeping. I began weeping because I was just tired. I was just tired, burnt out, whatever you want to call it. I was just tired, tired of the things I felt I wasn't doing right, tired of feeling like the things I felt were right but weren't right. I was just exhausted, exhausted from responsibility, exhausted from just the pressures and expectations of life and everything. And I, and I was also tired because I hated the sins that were emerging, creeping back into my life, sins that made me doubt Sins that made me disobey, sin that, sins that made me love and gravitate closer to the world and fur, further away from Christ. And so I wept because I was miserable, because I wanted some sort of quick resolution. God, I'm ready. Now's the time. Do it. This is the time. I was miserable, and I wanted an answer, and I wanted a remedy so I could apply to myself and then bring it back for you all. I wanted a blueprint of what to do next. I wanted something. God, just say something, I said. Just do something. Write on the wall. Speak to me. What am I supposed to do with 100 plus members? How am I supposed to lead them? How I'm, I'm not just unequipped. I'm ill-equipped. I don't know enough. I am not enough. I can't do enough. God, answer me. I wept. And in that quiet hour, just silence in my little prayer shack in the middle of winter. God, he finally spoke to me. But what he said had nothing to do with the vision. What he said had nothing to do with about changing myself or, or do, do more this, do more or don't do that or anything else. Because what he said was simply this. At three in the morning, and I know it was 3 in the morning because after this encounter, I got a text from my wife, said in the middle of the night, 
hey, I'm praying for you. And the Lord said, David, don't you know how much I love you? And it was at that time I said, God, I need a plan. I can't go back empty-handed. I need something. And he shushed me and said, David, don't you know that I love you? And it was the second time he said that, that those words sunk deep into my heart, into an area in my heart that I had hidden and kept safe from all people, even from God, so I thought. My insecurities, my fears, my fear of man, my pride, my rebellious heart, my hypocrisy. You see, at that moment, at three in the morning, in that midwinter's early morning, everything was exposed At that moment, and despite being fully known by him, God saying, you have this and this to take care of, and these are your problems. And despite all that, being fully known to him, what did he say? He told me that I was fully loved by him. You see, God's plan for me wasn't to build a big church or to be a better dad or to be a better husband. This, this plan had absolutely nothing to do with whether the church had a strong vision or not because at that moment, early in the morning, God had one thing in mind and that was to make known his love for me. That's it. And every single day, for you all too, is he wants you to know how much he loves you. Not do this, not be better at that, not achieve that or accomplish that. He wants you to know how much he desperately loves you. Do you get his love? And what was amazing was at that moment, everything I had come with, a list of things I need to take care of, all that just disappeared. All the things I had worried about had vanished. All my insecurities, all my pain, all the things I thought, God, complete, fixed, remedy this, all this was thrown out the window, you see, because when God said that he loved me, he was also saying, you know what, David, I want you to know that I love every single one of you too. And that he'll be the one to lead you. He'll be the one to strike that fire in your heart so that it would burn so brightly for him. It would not be me, it will never be me, and it will never be anyone else but him. So what did I do? Something uncontrollable. I began just shouting and laughing. With such joy as tears flowed down my face and I was spewing, shouting words of prayers as they left my lips. I was laughing like like the laughter of eternal security of so many believers in the face of certain death and persecution. I was laughing with the amazement when I first saw my children come to this world. I was laughing because at that moment, despite all the difficulties of my life, though Satan was attacking me as your leader, I knew Without a shadow of a doubt, that moment I was covered by the love of God. I was covered by the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. And so I laughed with freedom, with such joy and peace and security that I've never felt before, knowing I am loved by God. 
And so Sarah, she had something to rejoice. She had something to rejoice about because the promise of God became a reality when Isaac was born. And God changed her heart. God changed her mind. God changed her spirit so that she laughed no longer with doubt or skepticism, but with joy. Because when you experience the living God, you are free. So church, the Lord calls us to rejoice. Not in the foolishness of the world, but in the delight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus who changes people who were once dead into vibrant, born-again people of God who don't need to fear anything in this world. He has made us. He has redeemed us so that we might know him, glorify him, and enjoy him. So let's trust in God's unfailing promises because he is trustworthy, because God keeps his promises, God keeps his word. Let's remember also to surrender to him completely because he works by raising the dead in us when it appears that there are no options. And lastly, always remember, God's love for us is so deep. It is so real that it doesn't matter who you are or how many failings you've ever had or how many failings you will have. We can rejoice in God's grace because of his son, Jesus. That is why we worship him. That's why. Let's pray. Friends, church, Lord is speaking to you today. He is. Maybe right now you're in a place in life where you're still doubting him. We don't quite trust him because you don't think he's trustworthy. And to that I say, it's because you don't know him. If you need to make that profession of faith today, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not calling you up here. But you see, no one else and nothing else in this world will satisfy us but Christ alone. And he alone is the only one who can declare us righteous and make us right. As in put us in right standing before a holy and perfect blameless God. You can't do it on your own I can't do it on my own. We can never do it on our own. But Christ, through him, through his life, his death, his resurrection, if you surrender your life to him, he will credit you with righteousness. He will bless you with salvation. As in he will no longer just... He will also be the Savior, but he will be the Lord of your life, as in he will lead you throughout your life. And may for some of us here who do know him and who have a relationship with Jesus, you're still struggling. Because you, you're giving God options. You're saying, God, work in me this way and that way. And God's saying, I'm going to wait till you're almost dead. You see, because that's how he works. God's all about the resurrection. So what does that mean for us? Maybe you need to surrender. Maybe you felt like you have, but you actually haven't. Because you're still clinging on to something else because you still have that insecurity, you still have that fear. You just can't fully let go. 
But what about security? What about my finances? What about my reputation? What will my mom and my dad think? What will my girlfriend and boyfriend think? What will my spouse think? What will my, my employer think? What will my friends think? So I want to give you guys just a minute. Pray. Seek the Lord. And then we'll go into our time of communion. Let's pray. And now... Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is one of self-examination. It's where you check your hearts. It's where you judge yourself so that you're not harboring the sins that have remained dormant in your life that has not been repented of. This is the time of repentance. Make yourself right by clinging on to the life-giving grace of Jesus Christ. This is for only the believer, the one who has already placed their faith in Christ Jesus and who has been accepted by him by surrendering their life to him. We don't take this lightly. This is not just some meal or some snack, but this is an act of worship. So after a moment of just prayer, understanding what this is, after some time of repentance, after remembering the blood that he shed to forgive you of your sins, please rise and join us on either aisle. I read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Gracious Father, we thank you that you truly are a God of love and grace. We are thankful, Lord, that you, are, that you have sent your Son to die on our behalf. But Lord, we also express great sorrow because it was because of our sins that led to this great sacrifice on his part. And so at this time, we acknowledge, Lord, the community of believers. The fellowship here will be taking part in this, in remembrance of you, to worship you and to reflect, Lord, the great sacrifice you have made, the blood that has been shed. And Lord, that this is a reminder that we are one body. And so therefore, we take this all as one body. And so, Father, we pray that we would also take it in a way, in a manner that's worthy of this great sacrifice. So, Lord, we thank you that this is not the end. One day, Christ Jesus, you will come back. And you will bring your joy, your victory, your presence. We can't wait for that time. But, Lord, right now, we do this. We take this in remembrance of what you have done and what you're doing in our lives today and what you will do. 
We love you and we thank you. We worship you. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please join me.